All right, it is a Children's Church Sunday, as I recall, so kiddos, you may leave. Uh, Four-year-olds through fourth grade, I think Mr. Dillon and Miss Lake and her head that that way. Um, all right, and everyone else, if we could turn to the book of Psalm, we'll look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 this morning, starting in verse, in verse 9. And you may have noted that David Bigelow is going to read this morning. He called me last night and had uh, something he didn't know he needed to be at uh, this morning down with his parents in Salt Lake. So uh, we're going to just read this together before we get started here. Psalm 119, we'll look at verse 9 through verse 16. Now, if you've ever looked at the, this chapter, you may have noticed something a little bit different than most sections in your Bible, and that is you've got all these odd names or words in front of sections of, these, uh, of this psalm. So like Aleph, as at the very beginning, and Baith and Gimel, those aren't like names of like people from the Lord of the Rings. These are actually Hebrew words, uh, Hebrew letters. And so uh, the way that this is arranged is that each of these sections, they start with that letter. So it's a very well thought out psalm, and the whole psalm is essentially a love letter about God's word. So we're in the section Baith, which is the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and every single verse in Hebrew starts with that letter. Uh, and so uh, that, there's a little word that starts with that letter. It usually means in or with, which is why a lot of our verses in this section start with that. So let's read um, verses 9 through verse 16. You can follow along in your Bible, and I'll just read aloud up here. So Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, if you could listen, and I'll read. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of righteousness, in the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this text this morning. God, I pray that as we look at this text, that you would help us, before we even hear you speak this morning, to be pliable and teachable. We would come not as critics to stand over your word, to evaluate what gets in and what stays out, that we would instead come like worshipers, who would say to the God of all the earth, you speak and we will obey. Lord, this is worshipful listening, and I pray that you would help us even in these moments, to continue our worship by the way that we listen to your word. Give me wisdom and insight. Help me to speak your word clearly. And I pray that in the end, that you really would be shown to be a God worthy of this kind of attention and praise. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some passages, especially when you get to sections in the New Testament, come at you kind of like a string, like a like a necklace that's all got these pearls lined together, and you, your job is simply to trace them and see how they connect, but they're kind of already uh, developed for you. Other passages instead make you do a little bit of work. It's a little bit like my kids who might spread out their marbles in front of me or their toys in front of me and then pick and choose and tell me how they relate to another. What we're going to do then is take a little bit of time just to scatter these verses out, and this, verse is very, this chapter is very much like that where you have to do a little bit of digging, but when you do that, the reward is all the greater for it. So what I'd like to do is look at verses 9 through verse 16 and just take some time with you to examine the pieces individually. Then what we'll do at about halfway through the sermon is we'll start to string them together into an arrangement. All right, so are you ready for that kind of work this morning? This might even require a little bit of active participation, which we don't usually do in this worship service. But that's what I'd like to do, and I'd like to encourage you to think about this 
in, uh, in this way, that this whole psalm, this whole section is talking about the thing that the pure people treasure, all right, the treasure of the pure, and hopefully that will make sense as we go. So let's start with several slides here of opening observations. We read it, but we'll need multiple readings of it to really understand what's going on. So let me start to hopefully give you kind of the outline of what this will look like in the end with a central point that this psalm, this section of this psalm is trying to make. And it's simply this, that treasuring God in his word transforms you from the inside out. That's where we're going to arrive. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time so that as we scatter out everything in these verses, we don't lose track of that. Treasuring God in his word transforms you from the inside out. This is what the psalmist wants us not just to know, but to experience with him. Treasuring God in his word transforms you from the inside out. Now, I'll ask you a question, and this is something that I want you to answer as we go through this, all right? Whether you do it out loud or simply on your, your, your piece of paper there in front of you. How would you describe the nature of this poem? It is a poem, this section of this poem. All right, I'll give you some options here. Is it instruction? Is he instructing us? Is he declaring things? Is he praying? Is he making promises or commitments? Now, I think you'll actually see he's doing some of all of that, and they're interspersed and intertwined. But it's important for us to get that in our, in our knowledge before we start going through here. So you see how he's, he's almost instructing you to start with. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a question, and he answers it. You have to guard it according to your word. Now, notice... Something changes in verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. So what, what category would that fall under? You can say it out loud, all right? What category do you think it would fall under? He's talking to God now. We call that a prayer, right? All right, so he's praying to God. With my whole heart, I seek you. It's also kind of a declaration, though, isn't it? And some of you might have said that. Well, he's declaring what he's done. And in a sense, it's also kind of a commitment, all right? He's saying, I'm going to seek you. Now, he has a request, right? And this would definitely fall in the category of prayer at the end of verse 10. Let me not wander from your commandments. That's a prayer, isn't it? Look at verse 11. We could call this, what might you call this? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's still talking to God, so it's a kind of a prayer, but what other categories might you put that under? I'm hearing very slight whispers. Declaration, maybe? Is that what I heard? Commitment, a promise? All right, I think any of those would work. All right, verse um, 12, blessed are you, O Lord. All right, that would be a prayer of maybe praise. And now he says, teach me your statutes. That's a prayer of supplication. Now, he's still talking to God in verse 13, but he says, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. So it is a prayer, but what else might you call that? All right, declaration probably. Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much in all riches. I think we could tie that in with a declaration, but it's still a prayer. And it's still praying through verse 15 and 16, but now, what might you call, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your words. What might we call that? What kind of a prayer might that be? A promise, right? So you see how as we're kind of spreading out the pieces of this psalm, he's talking to God, but in different ways all throughout. Sometimes boldly as a declaration and sometimes asking things of God, sometimes just declaring who God is. This is important when we try to piece this all back together. He's also giving us, even by the way he's talking, a bit of instruction along the way. Okay. Next, there are several ways in which he describes the kind of whole person valuing of the word of God. So let's look at some of those. All right? look, what are the phrases he used to describe 
How much of him treasures God in his word? That's kind of the central point, remember. Treasuring God in his word transforms you from the inside out. So what are the, some of the words he uses to describe himself treasuring God's word? And I'm thinking here primarily of things like, I'll give you the first one, his whole heart or my heart. All right, so you look at verse uh, 9. He says, uh, or verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Or verse 11, I've stored up your word or treasured your word in my heart. All right, what else does he describe about himself in the psalm? Look at verse 13. It's his lips, right? So how he speaks, that would be the next one. His lips declare. How about verse 15? Where else does he turn his attention to in his own heart? Eyes, where he fixes his eyes or his attention. And here, probably not so much talking about his physical eyes, but using that as a metaphor for where he's placing his focus. Uh, how about uh, verse 15? Again, or verse 14, any other words you see there that he describes either his internal state or what he's giving attention, how he's using himself to give attention to God in his word. All right, the light, verse 14 and verse 16. All right, good. Where else? All right, meditate, good. Verse 16, it might be like the flip side of that, which is not forget. And in and, and Hebrew, the, the way that this word is written, it'd be more like the word remind. It's a very active word. It's not like I happen to remember or I happen to forget. It's I refuse to forget. I'm calling it to mind might be another way to say that. I call this to mind or I meditate. So you see how this is a, a whole person valuing of the word. From his eyes to his ears to his mouth to his heart to his mind, everything about him says, I treasure the word of God. Again, this will be really important as we pull this together. You, do, you might almost call this like a full obsession. When he's speaking, it's God's word that's there in his mind. When he's thinking, it's God's word that he's focusing on. When he's looking around with his eyes, it's God's word that's informing that. His heart's delight, what it rises to, is God's word. There's a sense in which this kind of obsession, really, it kind of overtakes everything about his regular day-to-day -day walk. The thing that, goes, that my mind goes to when I think about this kind of obsession is like really, really young love, if you know what I'm saying, all right? Let me... I don't think I've probably even told Megan this, but there was a, hey, Megan, by the way, this is um, when I was in seventh grade, all right? I was 12 years old. There was a girl named Amber. I think she knows, she knows her name, but there was a girl named Amber that I really, really, really liked. And here's how it affected me. When I showed up at church, you know what my eyes were doing? They were looking for Amber. When I was at a store, you know what I was thinking? I wonder what Amber would think about this T-shirt, right? When I spoke, I was like, is she listening? I want to sound really smart right? When I would sit there at bed going to sleep at night, you know what I was thinking about? Amber. That's right, all right? Now, Amber is long gone, all right? I haven't seen her in, I don't know, 20 years at least, all right? Um, but that's, that's kind of the, the level of engagement he has, isn't it? It's like he can't help but constantly be running back to God's word. That is actually the kind of treasuring that God has in mind here. The kind of treasuring that really, when you go shopping, God's word is there with you. When you go to bed at night, you're, you're thinking about God's word. When you speak, you're, you're behind the scenes. You're asking, how does God's word inform how I speak? When you think about situations that come your way, your instinct is to run to, what would God say about this? That actually is the kind of treasuring God has in mind here. He says that this whole person valuing of the word is the kind of treasuring that he's speaking of. So we've talked about kind of the nature of this poem. We've talked about this person's obsession, for lack of a better word, for God's word. Now, let's ask this question. How does the writer describe the Bible, all right, the words of God? 
What are some words that he uses? All right, so I'll let you look. What are some words, and again, this is the more interactive section, but I think it's important that we spread these marbles out together and then we try to put them together. So what are words that he uses to describe the word of God? I'll give you the first one. In verse 9, he says, your word. All right, he also uses the word word in verse 11 and verse 16, the same word, all right? The word of God. What other words does he use to describe the word of God? Okay, commandments, that's found in verse 10, right? All right, uh, what other words? Statutes, that's verse 12 and verse 16. What other words? Testimonies, good, that's verse 14. Another word? Rules, yeah, in verse 13, they're all the rules of your mouth. Good, how about uh, any other words? There's two more at least. Okay, precepts, good, verse 15. Any other ones that you see? All right, decrees, I can't remember if we mentioned that or not. Maybe I may not have it even up here. But I think I missed that in my, my list. Where is that, Steve? Verse 16, oh, you know, you have the word statutes is what I had, but your translation might be a little different, but that is the word, so. He also talks about God's ways, and it becomes clear as we read this that he's really speaking about the ways that God's word flushes out day-to-day life. So you can see how this is not a man who's thought lightly on the word of God. This is somebody who in a short few verses here, what, in, in seven verses has listed out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different words for the word of God. This is like a, a person who's taking God's word, and he hasn't just looked at it one dimensionally, but he's spun it around again and again and again. He said, you know, your word, they're, they're rules to me. They're commandments to me. They are statutes. They are testimonies. They are precepts, speaking about them as teachings. Rules would be the idea more of guidelines. Calling it the word is connecting it to the spoken word of a person. He's saying, these are your words to me. So this is a man who treasures God's word above everything else. Lastly, I want to ask you maybe what should seem like an obvious question at this point, but who or what is the focus of the psalm? It'd be God and his word, right? Now, here's one of the dangers of this section of, the, of Psalm 119, is that we oftentimes read the first question, and the focus of this becomes us. What's the very first question? Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? And so that this, the focus of this section can often be this. This is about being pure. Well, you can see how that's not what the psalmist's main focus is. That's the result of his main focus. Does that make sense? That's the end result. But the focus is actually God and his word. Now, what is the central concern or care of the psalmist? All right, you'll see it in verse 9, verse 10, and 11. He says it in different ways. Verse 9, he starts like this. He says he wants to be pure. The word is clean. And the idea is metaphorically that it's we're morally clean. He wants to be pure or clean before God. That is, no sin between God and him. Secondly, look at verse 10. He says a different way. He says, let me not wander from your commandments. That would be another way of saying the opposite of being clean, that is, not being clean or wandering away from God. Now, one of the things that I think we most get wrong about sin in our world today is what he says in verse 11. Verse 11 is a constant refrain in the Bible. I've stored my word in your heart that I might not sin, not a period. What does he say? Sin against who? You, right? This is one of the fundamental claims of the, the word of God, that sin is never only against a law code. Sin is never only against other people. Sin is always and firstly against God. If you miss that, 
you miss the whole point of the Bible because that is the sin that God has come to deliver us from. In other words, if you said it like this, what's the main problem people have? If you say, well, our deeds don't always line up with what the law code says, well, then what you need is more education or more motivation, right? If you say, what's the main problem of humanity? And you say, well, what they really need is more moral instruction or what they need is more care surrounding them. You've missed the point because our main need is you and I have sinned against the eternal God of the universe and there's nothing we can do to make it right. If you don't start there, the gospel is very, very hollow. If you don't start there, you have no need for God. In fact, isn't that what you might hear friends who don't believe in God say? They say, I don't really need God. Maybe they might even say it like this. I can be a good person without him. And you can see if that's the main need is just to curb our moral behavior against the law code, then maybe that would be true. But what if your deepest problem is this? You've sinned against the eternal God of the universe, and there's nothing you can do to make it right. This is what the psalmist wants us to know, and this is not a unique thing. This sin, all of our sin is always chiefly against God. Think back to Abimelech. You might remember the story of Abraham and Sarah going down, and they go to his area, and they're scared that Abimelech's going to kill Abram. And so they decide to lie and say that Sarah was his sister, which was halfway true. Well, that night, he takes Sarah into his home, but he doesn't do anything with her. God, in a dream, tells Abimelech, I kept you from sinning against, does anybody remember what God says? Sinning against me. That's what God says. Now, sin against Sarah, God says, he describes it like this, that's a sin against me. Or maybe you think about Joseph, who's tempted in Genesis 39. In verse 9, he says to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against, who does he say? God. He would sin certainly against Potiphar, against Potiphar's wife, against a bunch of rules and regulations, but that's not the central concern, is it? It's sinning against a person, God. Or you can think about David, who after killing a man, using another man to do the work, taking his wife, having a child by adultery, says this, he has the audacity to say this in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. His point is not that he hasn't sinned against other, but compared to the other people, God is the most important person sinned against. The Bible is from start to finish Concerned with this, that our sin is not against a law code, but against a person. So our concern in this psalm is our own purity, that we wouldn't wander away, but it's because of who it's against. Wandering away isn't wandering away from a set of rules or regulations. Being pure is not the obsession of somebody who simply wants to be by the book. It's somebody who says this, when I sin, I always sin against the person of the universe. This is something that continues into the New Testament when Paul, who's been killing Christians, dragging them out of their homes. And Jesus confronts him and he says, you've been persecuting, what does Jesus say? Me. That's right. From start to finish, sin is so big of a deal in the Bible, not because God wants us to just be by the book or not because rules and regulations are that important. It's because every sin is ultimately a sin against God himself. These opening observations are so important to us because without recognizing the depth of our need, we won't recognize that this obsession really is what's required for purity, for purity before God. Now, I mentioned just briefly, he does describe this as a young man, but this is uh, likely a stand-in for all of us. This was the word used all the time in the book of Proverbs. 
as a young man who was supposed to listen to these instructions, who stands in in our place. We're supposed to listen to these. And so he uses the same general term for a young man of, of marriageable age. This young man stands in for us then. How can we stay pure, clean before God? Not for our own sake, to gain our own trophies, but because every sin is a sin against that divine being. This is, these are some of the marbles we've scattered now. So what I want to do now is take two different slides here and I'll pull together these into maybe more of a, a full, complete picture. So I want you to think, first of all, about with me about the dangers of a wordless life or of not treasuring God's word like the psalmist wants us to do, all right? This is what he says. He says this is an impure, uh, an impure way of life is the danger that he, that, that's there without God's word. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Now, again, we just talked about the young man. Purify could mean one of two things, either keep pure or it could mean something more like to make pure after sin. And it could mean either, and I think in some ways when God does that, he means us to think about both. Literally translated, the word keep or protect isn't there. In fact, some of your translations might render that differently because it, it literally in Hebrew just says, how a young man purify his way. All right, how can he purify way? How can he keep his way pure? It could be either of those. This word for pure, like we've already talked about, means to be morally clean, full of integrity, that what you say is what happens, that it aligns with who God is, God's nature. And he uses a curious word for the word way or path. This isn't the normal word in Hebrew you'd use. It's, it's a word that's used sometimes to speak about like a highway or a path that you would walk on. And the implication is this, that it's your way of walking through this world. How can you keep the normal, regular path you take in life clean between you and God? He says that it's only through this, by guarding it according to your word. So that's the first danger, that without God's word, there will be impurity between you and God. And again, the reason that's important is because it's against the eternal God of the universe. Secondly, though, he says he, says he knows that one of the dangers he faces, that you face too, is what he says in verse 10. At the end of verse 10, he says, let me not what wander from your commandments. The second danger is an internal default to wandering. You don't have to do anything to wander. You just have to do nothing, right? This is what happens when your heart is magnetized towards sin. This word wander is a word that's used by God in Ezekiel 34 to speak about sheep without a shepherd who just wander aimlessly. This is our default, isn't it? Like Isaiah 53 speaks about, we all go astray following our own hearts. In other words, you might say, well, you know what? I don't see myself treasuring God's word like the psalmist is describing here, but I don't see any real overt sin in my life either. The psalmist is saying, actually, there is a problem. Doing nothing actually leads to wandering. Second danger then is a default, internal pull to wander away from God. Thirdly, he says, this intentional failure to do right. Look with me at verse uh, 11, the end of verse 11. He says, that I might not sin against you. Now, something I didn't draw out earlier is that this word sin means to miss the mark, but on purpose. It's one of many words that God uses to describe sin. But this one is like if you were aiming at a bullseye, and instead of hitting the bullseye and not even trying to hit it, you intentionally go offline. 
I think Pastor Greg's described this before, like uh, uh, somebody who intentionally hits somebody with a pitch in baseball. Are they missing the mark? Yes, but it's an on purpose. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this is he doesn't go after negative things, wrong things that we've done in this section. The thing that really bugs him when it comes to thinking about his sin against God isn't the wrong things he's done. It's the right things he hasn't done. He's missed that mark. That's the dark side of sin that we often don't think about, but that is much larger than wrong things. In other words, in the Bible, sin is not chiefly a problem of you committing wrong things against God. It's also a problem of you omitting all the right things. Now, you might say, well, that's impossible. Nobody would ever claim to do all the right things, and you would be right. (laughs) It is impossible, and nobody does claim that. When people say, I'm a pretty good person, what are they thinking of? Are they thinking of all the good things they've done? Not usually. They're thinking of all the bad things they haven't done. But here, the psalmist says, when I think about my relationship with God, I recognize all areas of sin, both the deeds I've committed, the impurities that he wants to stay away from, the wandering in his heart, and missing the mark on purpose over and over again. This third danger here, this third way of describing a danger perhaps, notice that just like we mentioned before, God is the target of all the sin. So you can see how the, the need for this isn't that the man wants to go home and say, I've lived a pure life this week. It isn't that he has some kind of trophy he's trying to earn. It isn't that other people are looking in on him and his reputation has been spoiled. People may never know about this. His concern is, what does God, what, what, what deeds have I done against God? What deeds have I omitted against God? So if you hear this morning, my guess is you say, you know what, I came to a church This morning, this would be a good deed I'm doing. I'm a generally good person. The psalmist actually wants you to hold that thought at the door. Instead, he wants you to think about yourself much more like this. I am a person who, without the intervention of the word of God, will wander and do wrong and not do the right things. And all of those are sins against the eternal God of the universe. That's why the psalmist is so intent on you picking up the one solution. In other words, if you think about yourself as merely a person who needs a little push from God or some more instruction or perhaps some more motivation or a community around you, that's what you really need in life. You've missed the psalmist from the gate. Because the dangers are much more severe than that. Failure to give attention to God's word like this actually puts you at jeopardy with God himself. Now imagine this. You live this whole life And let's paint the perfect picture. You finish this life with kids who love you, with money that you couldn't imagine in the bank, with houses all over the land, with success, and people saying, wow, I want to be like that person. But you're not okay with God. You see how that's total and ultimate failure. In the end, all of that, you will trade all of it ten times over to say, I was right with God. On the other hand, let's say that you say, you know what? I don't have much money. My personality isn't great. I'm just me, but I'm right with God. Now, what gets that to be the case? What is it that allows you to be pure and right with God? Is it merely your own attempts to focus in on the Word of God? Well, no, it isn't. 
right? That would just be earning God's favor. Can you earn the eternal favor of the eternal God of the universe by just focusing more on his word? I don't think so. That's insulting to think about. No, instead, God has to do something in you. God has to transform you by the work of Jesus Christ. This sin, ultimately, we find the solution about it in the word of God because God didn't send instructions only. What God sent was a savior to deliver us. God didn't simply give us more laws to follow, more deeds to do, more actions to carry out, more words to say, more thoughts to think. He sent us somebody to deliver us. The reason that this man loves the word of God is because this word tells him of God's salvation. Jesus came and lived this perfect life that we would all say is impossible. Never one time doing a wrong deed, not even wandering in his own heart, and always doing all the right deeds. And here's the thing, he offers it to you. This is the gospel that we hear about in the word of God. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, fulfilling all of God's righteousness, and then died taking on all the weight of sin that you deserved. Jesus didn't die merely as an example. If he did, we're all dead in our sins. He died as a substitute. The weight of your sin you might feel this morning as you read this, you say, I get it. My sin is much greater than I realized. It's not against the law code. It's against a person, and there's nothing I can do about it. And you're right. But Jesus came and he took all the weight of that sin, all that shame, and he said, I will pay for it. Jesus was the one who was pure. Jesus was the one who never wandered. Jesus was the one who never, ever missed the mark. And he did it in your place. The Bible tells us that all it takes is you admitting that before God and calling out for salvation, turning, the word is repenting biblically of your sins, and turning in belief that Jesus did that for you. It's that kind of a heart that then treasures the word of God. You can see how that is no longer a duty anymore. It's a delight. That's why he starts to use these kinds of words. We've looked at these dangers of wordless life. Let's look now at the activities of a word-filled life. We'll just break this down into two, and this will carry us through the rest of the psalm. First of all, treasuring the word of God is treasuring God. Now, that's not supposed to be a profound statement, but I think a lot of times we don't make that connection. So let me say it again. Treasuring the word of God is treasuring God. Now, we noted all of these words like commandments and statutes and rules. And Did you notice the word that was attached to all of them? Look down. What's the word that's attached to them all? Your words. Your commandments. Your statutes. Your rules. The rules of your mouth. In other words, when this man hears the word of God, he recognizes that he's hearing God. To listen to the word is to be taught by a person, by God himself. By contrast, to refuse to really pay attention to the word of God like this is to refuse to pay attention to God. I once had somebody tell me, he said, you know, it seems like you're putting God's word right up there with God himself. And I said, you're right. (laughs) Try this out on your wife today, men. Try to go home and your wife asks you to do something. You say, well, that was your words. That wasn't you. Try that out and then come back next week with a black eye and let me know how that worked for you. That's not how it works, is it? No, somebody's words, it's an extension of them. So to treasure God is to treasure his words. Now, this morning in Sunday school, we looked 
what it looks like to treasure and value God above everything else. And you might be still asking, well, how do I do that? What does that look like practically? It looks like this. You treasure God's words. When he speaks, that's God speaking. Treasuring God's words is treasuring God himself. Now, you might say, well, you know what? I sincerely want to be, I want to think a lot of God, and I want to treasure him. I sincerely want that. But I don't really treasure his words. Well, then, my friends, you're not sincerely treasuring God at all. Wanting something in your heart is not the same as it being the case. C.H. Spurgeon talked about it like a, a man in a, who, who guided a ship, a captain, who sincerely didn't want to hit the coast but refused to look to his, at his map. It doesn't matter the sincerity of his heart. The result will be the same. Or like a young man who picked up two uh, pill bottles, one of which was poison and the other was medicine, and refused to look at the label, but insincerity took one of them. And if he takes the wrong one, what will happen to him in spite of his sincerity? He will die. He will suffer the consequence of that decision. Today, in an age where we so prize our own sincerity, that God will see my heart in this. What God is saying in the psalm is, no matter your heart towards him in your mind, your sincerity towards him in your mind, if you refuse to treasure God's word like this, you're also refusing God himself, and the result will still be the same. It's not enough to say you want God. It's not enough to say you want to treasure God's word. Sincerity alone won't, won't curb the dangers that are your way. God wants you to treasure his words, and by treasuring his words, you are treasuring God himself. And lastly here, and I think we can see this as we've even looked throughout the kind of the opening section, treasuring the word is comprehensive. It's a comprehensive thing. It's an all-encompassing obsession. We could say it like this, it's heart-filling. It's his whole heart, he says. It's affection-stirring. It's his delight. It's what he gets joy out of. Action-directing, like verse 9 speaks about. If you look at verse 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's the word we talked about, that way. This walking path, his eyes fixed, focused. Speech affecting that the word of God comes out on his lips. That when he declares or when he uses his lips, what comes out is the word of God. And where we ultimately check this isn't at church building, it's at home, isn't it? It's with those we care most about. Where we ultimately get a, a real reading on this, it isn't in front of others, it's often alone by ourselves. Is this how you would describe your treasuring of the word of God? I think all of us would say, no, I fall woefully short of this. I want to encourage you that what God is doing is he's drawing you in today. This passage is not meant to be a club. It's supposed to be an invitation. Today, God is saying this, I want you to know me. Don't hear that as merely a rebuke. It's an invitation to know this, this God who has not only spoken to you, but he's taken care of your deepest problem, of the sin that you possess. And he's done that while you were an enemy against him. What love is this? I want to finish here with just a few applications, and then we'll be done. First of all, I want to encourage you to refuse to separate God from his word. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, For you have exalted above all things, your name and your word. Refuse to separate God from his word. So what that means, practically speaking, 
is that when you think about your pursuit of God, you really need to be thinking about your pursuit of his word. If I were to ask you, do you pay attention to God day to day in your life? It's not enough to say, well, I go outside in nature and I think about God. That's not what God's asking for. What he's asking for you to do is to listen to his words and then let those words interpret those experiences. Refuse to separate God from his word. When God speaks his word, God speaks. If you were to evaluate your relationship with God, you should be evaluating your relationship not with a feeling of God, but with his word. What is your relationship like with God's word today? Truly, what is it like with God's word? What is it like on your way, on your path, like he's talked about in verse 9? A very real-life example, you woke up this morning. What thought did God's word have on your waking hours, your first hour or two of the day? Not even just talking about did you sit and read the word of God, but how did it affect the way you carried yourself this morning? How did it inform your decision to be here? How did God's word inform the way you sang this morning? You can see how this kind of all-focused obsession, like I talked about earlier, that's really what the psalmist is after, isn't it? So refuse to separate God from his word. Secondly, treasuring purity is not the same as treasuring the word of God. This is just a brief note that since this psalm is so often, mostly, a lot of times we so focus in on that purity, especially when it comes to young men. That one of the dangers I often see is that people prize their own cleanliness their own reputation, their own mental picture of themselves above God. That's not the same thing as what God's talking about here. The danger of that kind of purity is it ends up putting that purity in God's place to where the end-all, be-all, the goal that the whole thing is aimed towards is that I would be a good person. That's not worshiping God. That's worshiping you. What God's after is you treasuring Him and His Word. And then God uses that to produce purity in you. And finally, I want to remind you that and encourage you to respond to God's action and speech towards you. You might notice that who's the one who started speaking first in all of this? He says, your word was there ahead of time. Your commandments were there already. I've stored up, or the word is treasured. It, it literally means to memorize the word of God. But it was God's word that was there ahead of time. God had spoken ahead of time. He says, God, teach me your statutes that you've already said. My lips will declare the rules of your mouth, which you've already spoken of. And the way of your testimonies, you've already spoken. I now delight in them as much as in all riches. I will meditate. The word there, meditate, literally has the idea of murmuring to yourself. I'll murmur to myself the things that you've already said. So who's spoken first? God has. So let us put out of the thought, out of our minds that we are now stepping towards God and we're hoping he'll step towards us. It doesn't work that way. You've never done it once, not one time. God has always stepped to you first, and today he's doing that. Today he's taking a step towards you. He's already spoken to you. You never start by acting towards God. You only ever react to what he's already done towards you. Today, God has already acted towards you. He's spoken plainly and clearly. What he wants is for you to respond to that. The impetus of the action then is not upon you, it's on God. The question then is what will you do with his speech? Will you respond to it with treasuring it? Or will you turn a blind eye and maybe convince yourself that you're still treasuring God while at the same time rejecting or not giving his word this kind of attention? Remember that God has spoken first towards you.
I want to encourage kind of two groups of people as we end here. First of all, you may be here and you say, you know what? I'm a good person. I'm a religious person, but I don't know that I know Christ savingly. I've never asked him to forgive me of my sins. I've never turned, repented, and believed only in Christ for salvation. I've tried to add on my own good deeds on top of that. Let me encourage you, if you're assuming that by trying to treasure God's word, it will somehow earn favor with an eternal God, then that is a hopeless case. In fact, all you will do is heap up for yourself more indictments against yourself. To reject the Son of God in favor of your own righteousness is not honoring to God. So I would encourage you this morning that as you hear this, that part of treasuring God's words for you is to actually admit that you are a sinner and that Christ alone is the only Savior. Today can be the day of salvation for you. You really can be secure in this, that you have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for you. The second group of people I want to talk to is those Christians here today who say, you know what, I know I'm a believer. I'm a true Christian. I've really turned from my sin. I believe only in Christ for salvation. None of my own deeds add anything to that. But I see in myself that I don't treasure God's word like this. And maybe for the first time in a while, I've recognized that the problem is not that I've fallen short of a law code or that I haven't lived up to my expectations for myself or other people's expectations to myself. The problem is I've sinned against God in that. Today, I want forgiveness. Well, today is God's extension of an invitation to you to get that. Right now, in your own seat, you can say, God, I recognize that my failure to listen to your word caused me to wander. That's my default, God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And Today, I want to turn and ask your forgiveness. And Today, I want to show I treasure your word by responding to it. Today, that really can be you. Do you know that all of us are going to fall in one of those two camps? There is no third camp where somebody says, I perfectly treasure God's word today. It doesn't happen. So which are you this morning? Which are you? Here's the thing. God has spoken. And now it's our opportunity, our privilege to respond to that. Let's pray. God, the pure in heart aren't those who have worked diligently to make themselves pure, but those who have fallen on the mercy of Christ. So I pray that if there are any here who have turned from you, who maybe have never known you, and this morning for the first time perhaps they've recognized that they have sinned not against the law code only, but against a person, the person of the universe, and that there's nothing they can do to make themselves right with you. No good deeds, no amassing of, um, of righteousness is going to appease your eternal God-sized wrath. What they need is the one who always fulfilled your word, who was always pure, who never wandered, who never sinned, who always hit the mark. What they need is Jesus in their stead. I pray that today they would call out to you for salvation, that they would recognize that they're sinners and that only Christ can save them. I know there are also many here who are genuinely born-again Christians, not because of what they've done, but because of what you've done for them through Christ. And all of us would readily admit that this treasuring, this obsession with your word and the way it plays out in our day-to-day life falls woefully short of what it should. I pray that this morning we would not hear this psalm, this poem, only as a club to beat us or as a reproof to correct us, but also as an invitation to draw us in. You are here to comfort us and to give us your words. And so help us to to take this opportunity to draw to you. And how will we draw to you? Well, we'll give attention to your word. Today, we'll actually read your word. 
When you speak, we'll listen carefully. Tomorrow, we'll let your word inform how we speak or how we interact with our coworkers or our boss or our kids. Your word will actually play itself out in the way that we choose our day-to-day activities. That your word will be the guiding principle on our way, on our walk of life, on our road, on our highway, on our path. Like this kind of treasuring is what you deserve because these words aren't detached from you. They are from you. They're an extension of who you are in your character. And so help us to prize your word. To not substitute sincerity for, for treasuring. And then to find you to be the kind of God who enriches us more than we thought possible. Thank you for this section in this book of the Psalms. And I pray that you help us to now give careful heed and attention to our way because of it in Christ's name.